there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I want to talk to you this afternoon about the perplexities of prayer. Just this morning, when I was at my daughter's house in Mission Viejo, she told me that her 10-year-old daughter, Christiana, had waked up with this, this morning with a fever. And this was particularly disastrous to this 10-year-old because she has a dress rehearsal this afternoon for a little thing that they're going to put on at a mother-daughter tea tomorrow afternoon. And she's probably not going to make it to the dress rehearsal or perhaps even to the performance tomorrow. And I thought, well, now that's just a very little thing, isn't it, compared to some big things that we've been thinking and praying about in the last couple of days. But to a 10-year-old, it's a very big thing. And, of course, I went immediately up to her room, and I found her sitting up there in her bed with the glummest look on her face, reading Little Women. And I sat down and, and talked with her about this and prayed with her, of course. But we never know what answer God is going to give us. Of course I prayed my request. The Bible says, make your requests known unto God. And as a grandmother who loves that child, of course I prayed that the Lord would raise her up very quickly and perhaps even enable her to go to the dress rehearsal this afternoon. We all know how devastating a disappointment can be to a child. And then with the rest of you, I suppose, the last couple of days, yesterday and the day before, we pray for the riots, for calming, for God to spare the innocent people and to comfort those who have already lost so much. I'm sure many of you saw last night that dear hysterical woman just utterly demolished by the loss of her business. We pray, oh Lord, have mercy upon them. Lord, deliver them from their distress. Lord, comfort them. Lord, use this experience to draw their attention to you. Those are prayers about which we don't, we, we can hardly even imagine in the second case what, what the answers will be. And undoubtedly we will not know until we get to heaven what all the answers were. Not very long ago I heard a most wonderful story about answers to prayer on the part of two different people who did not know each other at all. This friend told me that she was going to lunch with another friend in a restaurant, and she had a $5 bill that somebody had given to her, and she began to be deeply conscious of the fact that this $5 was not meant for her, but God was telling her that she should give it to someone else in the restaurant. And a man came in, very poorly dressed, with two very poorly dressed little children, and instead of going to the counter, this was a fast food place where you go and get your own stuff, they just sat down at a table nearby. And the lady watched this man and wondered if this could be the person to whom God wanted her to give the $5 bill. And, of course, she prayed, Lord, show me what, what shall I do? And she talked with her friend, and she said, but I just can't 
get up and walk over and just hand him a $5 bill. I mean, what if he's uh, insulted or resentful? What? How can I do this? But she prayed that God would in some way make it happen that she would come face to face with this man as they were standing up. She couldn't see how this was going to happen. And they went through the lunchtime and it was time for them to get up and pay their bill. And just as she got up from the table, the man got up with the two little children and started to walk toward the salad bar. And she came face to face with him. And so very quickly, she thrust the five dollar bill at him and she said, I think Jesus has told me to give this to you, sir. And she was going to run out of the restaurant just as fast as she could. And he said, wait, I must tell you that I have no money. But Jesus told me to come into this restaurant and get some food for my children. Incredible, isn't it? I don't have any stories quite that dramatic and mysterious and miraculous. Many of you probably have. The perplexities of prayer. Why does it happen to some people? It doesn't seem to happen to me that way. Why is it that we can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray about something and it doesn't seem that God is listening at all. Well, the first thing that we need to consider as we pray is to whom we're coming. We're coming to the Lord of the universe, the one who put the stars up there and keeps the sun rising when it should rise and setting when it should set and keeps the tides going up and down and keeps the winds in the palm of his hand, the man, the one who can speak to the wild wind and the boisterous waves, and his voice calms them immediately. The one who made iron float in an Old Testament story and the one who made the sun stand still. This God is our God forever and ever. And this God is my Father He's my father, and I'm his child. So when I come to him, I realize that his power is utterly unlimited. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And my Bible tells me that he loves me with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Now that is a very secure place to be. That doesn't mean that I have all the answers. There are still perplexities. But think about this. If we had the answers, if there were no perplexities, what room would there be for faith? Faith operates in the dark where there are no answers. If someone gets lost and stops a stranger on the street and asks, how do you get to such and such a place? If the stranger gives him what sound like fairly clear and reasonable directions, then the person follows those directions in trust. He has absolutely no reason to trust this person, except that perhaps he's a local resident and probably will tell him the truth. And yet how much easier it is sometimes for us to trust somebody like that that we've never seen before than it is to trust God 
when our prayers don't seem to be being answered? Do we forget that he loves us? And that when we come to him, we come as a child to a father. A child is totally dependent. A child, although he doesn't know it, is ignorant. He doesn't really know what's good for him. And a child comes expectantly. He knows that daddy can fix it. He knows that mommy can do it. I was talking to a group of little girls last night about the subject of prayer and trying to bring it down to their level. And I said, if if you asked your mother for five popsicles all at once, what would she say? One little girl right away spoke up and said, no way. (laughs) And I said, but why would she say that? Does your mother hate you? She said, no, she loves me. So I said, that's why she says no, isn't it? She says no, because she loves you. And yet sometimes a little child's reaction to something like that is, you never let me have what? Anything. (laughs) Well, now, who talks like that to God? All of us. You don't hear my prayers. You're not paying any attention. And we get resentful and we get feeling very sorry for ourselves. But let's remember that a father is going to say no for exactly the same reason that a good human father is going to say no and a good human mother is going to say no because they love the child and because the father knows far better than the child does what's good for him and our Heavenly Father knows far better than you and I do what's good for us. us. Now, the Bible does say that we are to bring our requests And they are requests. A request may be answered with a yes, or it may be denied. And we must always keep that in mind. It is legitimate, right, proper, good that we as God's children come to him with our requests. But at the same time, we must remember that a request may receive a no. I wrote a biography of a great missionary to India. She was an Irish woman named Amy Carmichael. She went to India way back in the latter part of the 19th century, and she was there for 53 years without a furlough. She died in India. And she told a story to her Indian children, of whom God gave her hundreds. She was a single lady, but she became the mother of hundreds of Indian children in a work that was established for them. And she told her children about an experience that she had in the perplexities of prayer when she was only three years old. She heard from her adults, uh, her parents, I suppose, and other adults that God answers prayer. And as a little child, she believed them. And she decided to test what God would do about the thing that she wanted most in all the world which were blue eyes. And so in great trust, she got down by her bed before she went to sleep one night, and she asked God to exchange those brown eyes, which she did not want, for a pair of blue ones. And she went to bed happily, hardly able to wait until the next morning when she was sure that she would see blue eyes. And so she jumped out of bed in the morning, she pushed her chair over to the dresser, and she climbed up and she looked in the mirror, And the eyes were still brown. And when she told this story years later to her children, she 
said that she really couldn't remember whether some adult had said this to her or whether God spoke it to her heart. But somehow the answer came, isn't no an answer? But what that little three-year-old could never imagine in that little village in the north of Ireland was that someday God would call her to be a missionary to India and that there would be times when her very life might depend on her being taken for an Indian. She did have beautiful dark hair and rather a dark complexion. She always dressed in a sari and had bare feet. She identified herself as completely as possible for a foreigner with the Indian people. If she had had blue eyes, of course, it would have been a dead giveaway, even from a distance. So her life was spared on more than one occasion because she was thought to be an Indian. Now, God doesn't necessarily reveal to us here in this life why he said no about a given petition, but I'd like you to stop and think right now of some of the foolish prayers you prayed in the past. Can you remember that first boyfriend? And you just thought, any of you that are as old as I am will know the word dreamboat. We used to say they were dreamboats, and nowadays they, well, not nowadays, I guess I'm still about 20 years behind the times. I remember there was a word hunk. He was a dreamboat in my day, and then it was a hunk, and something else now, and I've forgotten what it is, but, you know, whatever this guy is, that you just would give anything in the world to get a date with this guy. I can remember my daughter Valerie just crying her eyes out when she was in the seventh grade because Joe had not asked her for a date. And I can remember praying in the sixth grade that a certain guy named Bob would look at me, would just look at me and maybe smile. Now, you know, some of God's greatest mercies are his refusals. Make your requests known unto God and remember that this God who can do anything, who knows better than you do what's good for you and who loves you with an everlasting love, may say no. You remember that the Apostle Paul prayed three times for the removal of that thorn in his flesh, which was described as a messenger of Satan. But it was given to him, he said, to keep me from becoming absurdly conceited. And God's answer was no. My grace is all you need. And what Paul, that great spiritual giant, that intellectual giant, needed at that point in his life was a revelation of the grace of God that could only come to him in that way at that particular time. And if God had taken away the thorn on the first request... He would not have learned that grace is all you need. And every one of us has a thorn of some sort that God is not removing. He is not changing the situation. He is not yanking us out of it. He's just saying, I want you to learn that my grace is what you need. One of the earliest, I suppose the earliest prayer that I learned was a prayer in a little children's hymn that my parents used to sing to each of us six children when they would tuck us into bed at night. Jesus, 
Tender shepherd, hear me. Bless thy little lamb tonight. Through the darkness, be thou near me. Keep me safe till morning light. And I can look back over every one of my 65 years and know that every single night of my life, God has kept me safe till morning light. How many times have I thanked him? It's amazing how few of our prayers we remember to thank God for and how few of the things that God has given us were actually the answers to prayer because it never even occurred to us to ask him to enable us to take the next breath, for example, or to put one foot in front of the other until we see somebody in a wheelchair, as I see right down here in front of me. You see someone in a wheelchair, you see someone blind, and all of a sudden... It stabs you to the heart to realize you've got two legs at work. You've got two eyes that see. And we don't even thank him. But when we do pray, then sometimes we remember to thank him and sometimes we don't. The other prayer that I learned very early in my life was the Lord's Prayer, because every single morning after breakfast, my father gathered all of us children and my mother and all of us went into the living room and we had family prayers. We sang a hymn. My father read the Bible to us and then we knelt as he prayed and then led us all in the Lord's Prayer at the end of that prayer. So every day of my life, we said the Lord's Prayer. And like any other kids, I rattled it off. And, you know, we memorized by the time we were two years old, I suppose, every word in that. It didn't mean one single thing. We just said it. But my parents had the good sense to believe that it doesn't make any difference whether children understand or not. You just stuff their heads as full as you can with something that's worth keeping. Stuff them full of scriptures. Stuff them full of the great hymns of the church. Stuff them full of Christian biographies. And it's amazing how they can remember that kind of thing. But anyway, I said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if anybody had stopped me and said, What in the world does that mean? thy kingdom come, I wouldn't have had a clue. In fact, my mother heard my sister calling a kitty that she had, Kedem, and she was saying, Kedem come, Kedem come, you better come, you bad Kedem. She didn't have an idea what that meant. But the older I get, the more... I realize that the Lord's Prayer is exactly what I want to pray because it covers everything. And last night as we sat with our host and hostess in Mission Viejo watching the horror show on the TV, that was all I could think about. Thy kingdom come, Lord. I don't know how in the world what's going on here can possibly have anything to do with that. But you know, and you do know how to transform the worst things that ever happen in this world into the best as we know from the cross of Calvary. That was the worst thing that man ever did to man, to nail the Son of God to that instrument of torture. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, transformed that wicked deed for the salvation of the world. And God does know how to do that. So there's no way that I can pray very specifically except when I saw the weeping woman and I see the man being beaten on the street. I can pray for them individually, but Lord, this whole thing, all that's behind this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, the Bible says if we ask anything according to his will, 
it will be done. But the great question is always, how can I know? Well, sometimes I can know because it's very clearly explained in Scripture that this is the will of God. For example, in First Thessalonians 4, Paul says in exactly those words, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And I can know that that is the reason for absolutely everything that happens to me. God has permitted it by his holy will for what? In order to transform Elizabeth Elliot into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So when I pray, now watch it, be careful here. When you pray, thy kingdom come, which covers everything that God is doing or ever has done or ever will do. If I'm going to pray that, part of the coming of his kingdom is going to involve your sanctification. Does that scare you? What might you have to pay in the way of a price for that? Why does he do it? Well, for the same reason that you correct your child. God gives you a little barbarian and you have to civilize that child. And you're not going to allow that child to have his elbows all over the table and to be shoveling the food in with two forks at the same time. Why? Because you want that child to grow up to be an unselfish, pleasant to get along with kind of a person. Why do you care? Well, because you love him. Well, God's idea for us is infinitely higher than table manners. He wants to make us perfect. And what it takes to make you perfect is different is a different set of circumstances than what it takes to make me, but we're all on the way if we're children of God. Now, I'm sure that I'm talking to some some people here this afternoon who would not claim to be a child of God in the sense that you have received Jesus Christ in any very specific way into your life or even think of yourself usually as a child of this loving father. But he's calling you. And he's calling all of us to a life of sanctification. In other words, continually being perfected into the image of his son. It says in Romans 8:28, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. There are no exceptions. Everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to them that love God. To them that are called according to his purpose and his purpose is defined in Romans 8:29 where it says we are to be conformed to the image of his son that is his purpose he wants to make you and me like Jesus is that what you want i hope so well back when i was a college student i was convinced that god was calling me to be a foreign missionary and i was thrilled I had grown up in a missionary-minded home, and my parents had been foreign missionaries, and we entertained foreign missionaries. My mother had a guest book with 42 countries represented in it, and I grew up watching missionary slides and hearing missionaries speak and listening to missionary stories at our dinner table and reading missionary books. So when God called me to be a foreign missionary, I was thrilled to death. But I was scared to death that I was going to go to the wrong field. I was pretty sure God wanted me to go to Africa, and I was delighted with that. I pictured myself in a thatched hut of some sort in some 
unknown section of the jungle of Africa. But I began to pray very clearly for the right field and the right kind of a job. I didn't know exactly what kind of a missionary God wanted me to be. First, I thought it was medical and then finally realized God had given me a gift in linguistics. And so I offered myself for linguistic work. And in God's guidance, he, he did answer those prayers. He did take me to Ecuador, South America, not to Africa, as I had expected, but to South America. Well, once I got there, I still didn't know which tribe I was supposed to go to because I knew there were nine tribes in Ecuador, only two or three of which had their languages reduced to writing. And it was my job to reduce unwritten languages to writing. And so... It wasn't very long after I had gotten to Ecuador and was praying, Lord, show me which tribe to go to, that two English women missionaries learned that I was there and had linguistic training, and they came to me and they said, we've been working in the tribe of Colorados in the western jungle. We don't have linguistic training. We have never been able to learn this language. We don't know how to write it down. Would you come and help us? And so God answered that prayer, and I went to work with the Colorados. Well, the first thing that you need to do if you're a linguistic missionary is to find some speaker of that tribe who has the endless patience that it takes to sit down with this apparently seriously retarded foreigner <laughs> and simply repeat over and over again what for him is the easiest language in the world. And he cannot even imagine why a foreigner has such a terrible time with it. None of us can remember learning our mother tongue, can we? And to us, our mother tongue is the easiest language in the world. But just try learning somebody else's mother tongue sometime. And especially if you don't have any teachers or any interpreters or any textbooks to go by. So I was having to get this man to sit there and I would ask him over and over again to say one word and then try to write it down exactly as he said it and then try to find out what it means. Well, I had found exactly the help that I needed. I not only found a man who spoke the language and was endlessly patient and was willing to work for me at my price, but he was a bilingual speaker. He could speak Spanish. And, of course, I had had to learn Spanish because that's the national language of the country. And Macario was a wonderfully qualified informant. And we began to work together. Now, up to this point... It seemed to me that these huge issues about the coming of the kingdom of God fit very nicely into that petition. Thy kingdom come. God wants missionary work done. God wants individuals to go to foreign countries where they've never heard the name of Jesus. God gives gifts, and he had given me a gift in linguistics, which I didn't recognize until I was in my junior year in college. God had answered my prayer for guidance took me to the right continent, took me to the right tribe, led me to the right man. All of these things just fit very neatly into my idea of how God operates and how he answers our prayers. Well, one morning when Macario and I had not been working together for very many weeks, I was in my bedroom reading my Bible and praying, and it just so happened that my reading fell in 1 Peter 4, and this is what it says. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings 
of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And just at that point, I heard gunshots. There was nothing unusual about hearing guns. We lived in a small clearing in the jungle where there were about six or eight houses where white Spanish-speaking Ecuadorians lived. But back in the jungle, all around us, at some distance, were the Colorado Indians. And both the white men and the Colorados hunted with guns. So it was a common occurrence to hear them, but it was not a common occurrence to hear the gunshots followed by people screaming and running and horses galloping through the clearing. So I got up off my knees and I raced outside to learn that my informant, Macario, had just been murdered. Now that did not fit into my idea of thy kingdom come. And as I looked at this corpse with a hole about that big right in his head, realizing that this was the only man in the world that spoke these two languages, literally the only man that spoke fluently both the Colorado language and Spanish. Why would God allow this to happen? Does that make sense to you? Does it fit in with the way you think God ought to help a missionary? Well, of course, it didn't fit any of my categories. Now, you think about the biggest prayer you ever prayed that God refused. What was your response? What did God say to you when you said, why? You stand, as it were, on the edge of an abyss, don't you? And you look down into that darkness and you hear no answering echo. You see no glimmer of light. And you say, why? You know what God said to me? Trust me. Trust me. I've got the whole world in my hands. I know exactly what I'm doing. Nothing can ever touch you that doesn't come through my permission. Have I given you a promise that everything that happens fits into a pattern for good? I will keep my promise. I am the Lord. And so you're back to that tremendous overarching petition, thy kingdom come. In strange and unexplainable ways. Trust me. Well, I've had a good many experiences since then about which God said only those two words. Many times since then, I have said, why, Lord? The perplexities of prayer. And suddenly, when something like that touches us very personally, we find ourselves in a different realm. We find ourselves in an abs, in a vast and deep and incomprehensible area. Or is it so incomprehensible? Has God left us with no clues at all? He has given us so many. Remember to whom we come.
Remember to whom our prayers are directed, not to another person, not to another human being, but to that Lord of the universe, Lord of the stars, Lord of the galaxies, Lord of the tiniest hinge on a spider's eye, Lord of the atom. Nothing escapes his notice. And he says, I am the Lord. Well, who am I? I'm just his child. And the little child doesn't know that five popsicles really are not good for him. To him, they look like five good things. Now, why am I here in San Miguel, is what I wanted to say to God, because the little clearing where I lived was called San Miguel de los Colorados. What am I doing here? Did I miss your call? Maybe I should have gone to Africa. Maybe I came to the wrong continent. Maybe it wasn't this tribe at all that you wanted me to come to. Maybe it was a mistake for those English women to come and invite me to come down here. Why did you lead me to Macario? If you knew that the only man that could do this job was going to get murdered. What is it that God is teaching us? He is teaching us to trust him. To trust him. And his great desire for you and me is that we should pin all of our hopes on him, not on anybody else. People will always let you down. Circumstances will let you down. This morning I read a long letter from a young woman who had read some of my books. I've never met this lady. And she wrote about six pages describing how she had left her home in California and gone back east to do some nursing. And she had prayed for weeks and months about whether to leave California where all her friends were and whether to go way back east where all of those terrible Easterners live. And uh, she had prayed over every detail. And she'd gotten not only one job, she had applied for three different jobs in a very well-known hospital. And she had been accepted for all three jobs. And so she had prayed that God would show her which one to take. And she had believed that she got the right answer. And then she prayed about where she should live. And she prayed about all the details and what church to go to and prayed for friends. And she's writing to me to say that she's not very happy. And she's not very comfortable. She really wants to be back in California. And the very first paragraph of her letter, and I, after I'd read the whole thing through, I went back and read that first paragraph. I thought, did I really imagine this or did she really say this? And she did. She writes the very first paragraph by saying, I'm writing to you because I respect your opinion, but I think I already know the answers to my questions. <laughs> well, if she's read any of my books, she ought to know the answer to her question. God never promised us a rose garden. Has any of us ever been in our whole born lives in any situation which was absolutely perfect? Of course not. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you women who are or have been married would say that you did get the perfect prize package that you thought you were getting? the prize package turns out to be a surprise package. (laughs) And so what do we do? Well, nowadays, there's always that fire escape, isn't there? You just 
It's as long as we both shall love, and when the love evaporates, you trade him in for a new model. But that isn't the way God works, is it? When we pray for guidance, and we believe that God has given us guidance, and God puts us where we believe he wants us, and then he starts to test us. And this woman actually used the word crucible. She said, when I go to my job in the hospital, I feel as if I'm in a crucible. You know what a crucible is. It's the place in which gold is refined. And in first chapter, first Peter, he says the trying of your faith is much more precious than gold. And if everything were perfect, we wouldn't need any faith. If people never let us down, we would put all our hopes in people. If circumstances gave us peace, we would never need to know the peace of Jesus. And Jesus' last gift to his disciples was my peace. I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. Now, Jesus had been living here in this world, suffering all that a man could suffer, and walking and talking with people for three years in a very intimate relationship with those disciples. But he had been mocked and hated and opposed and argued with, and ultimately he was spit upon and bound and flogged and stripped and crucified. And he knew that that's that's what was coming very shortly after he gave this promise to his disciples. But he said, my peace I give unto you, the kind of peace that survives anything that can ever happen to a Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no other peace in this world. There is no other security. There is no other satisfaction. The perplexities of prayer. What are you praying for? What do you expect God to do about that situation? What could I tell this lady in my answer to her letter? God led you there. God gave you the job. Stick it out. Stay in the crucible. Be refined. Ultimately, you'll find joy. Just because you're not happy, you know, we, we're all very much creatures of our generation and of our uh, culture, American culture, which nowadays is obsessed with comfort and safety, security and fun. And there's no state any more dedicated to comfort and fun than the state of California. You've got a lot of comfort with this weather. It's quite different from Massachusetts, where my husband and I live. But does everything have to be comfortable? Does everything have to be fun, fun, fun? You know, this world is not Disney World. Well, prayer is participation in the work of Christ and cooperation with him in his work. And so when I pray, I want to lift up all my petitions that they may fit in with the coming of the kingdom of God. And I just say, Lord, if it doesn't fit the coming of your kingdom, and the doing of your will, scratch it. I want to be a participator in the work of God. And people who are interested in something like a rescue mission in a place like Long Beach surely must have been thinking seriously about these things. Why would you bother? Well, because Jesus Christ bothered with us. 
And as someone has written, prayer is not so much the means whereby God's will is bent to man's desires as it is that whereby man's will is bent to God's desires. You and I are cooperators by prayer. And a scripture which I'm sure is very familiar to all of you, but so appropriate, and we need to be reminded of it daily, as servants of the Lord. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And they said, just what you and I would have said, when did we ever see you hungry? It's that hungry man that comes in off the street. It's that next door neighbor who needs your prayers, your comfort, that is Jesus Christ. And what we do to that person or what we don't do to that person, we do or do not do for Jesus Christ. The perplexity of prayer takes us high into the heavenlies, in the kingdom of God, in the will of God. And the work that God has given to you and me to do here and now matters. In terms of a kingdom which is invisible to us now, but which will someday be gloriously revealed. And you have no idea how vital that little seemingly hidden, insignificant job that God has given you to do is going to turn out to be. May God make us faithful. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.